Welcome back. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> no, go ahead. On a welcome back to True Crime Trine, it's a podcast where three friends get together. The planets don't align. We don't, don't. We don't make them align anymore. They're always fucking moving around and shit. Like, I can't keep track of those fuckers. So <laughs> I'm going to focus on my two other friends in the world and get together to chat true crime astrology and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Welcome to episode 94. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just committed. That's the 2023 theme. Just committing. (laughs) No, I don't want to commit. Well, I committed to this job. And this job. Committing not being committed. Yeah. Hashtag, sorry, not sorry. Committed, not committed. (laughs) But like not being committed to like, anyway, it was more of a mental health joke, but I'm- Oh, I just got it. I was Mm. thinking about the commitment to the bit, which- Oh. I, I would, and that would get me committed, <laughs> depending on the depending on the bit. Okay. <laughs> Anywho, that's all I have. Some housekeeping or okay. biznatch. Biznatch. We have over seven thousand one hundred and fifty listens, dudes. Hi. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? And we want to extend a huge thank you and smooches to our listener in Ashburn, Virginia. And Malibu, California, as well as all of our listeners in Norway. We love you so much. I wonder if Malibu is Neil. Oh. He doesn't live in Malibu, but he lives close. Maybe. I don't know. Neil, weigh in. I was going to say, I was just in Malibu, but I didn't listen to the podcast, so that wasn't me. But yeah, so listeners, we love you, and we would also love to hear from you, so definitely reach out. We'll tell you our info later. I'm definitely going to have to just make something up for next week. I have ideas. You probably have more ideas than than I do, for sure, because this one I pulled out my ass today. Here we go. Sarah style. Snatch ass news. Snatch ass. Snatch that ass. (laughs) Okay. Hope we're right. Okay. What I have for you today is the story of the sea orphan. Have either of you heard no. the story? No. For this episode, I am going to take us back to 1961. Yay! To start, we are going to review some facts about 1961 since none of us were born yet. Mm-hmm. And then I have three historical trivias for you. Yay. I do not know the 60s very well. I'm going to say that. Well, we'll learn some stuff. It'll be fun. On January 20th of 1961, John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States. Cool. Minimum wage was at $1.15. God. Nice. The day is the dream. Yeah, but how much did like a loaf of bread cost? We're getting there. I'm going to say this minimum wage is probably way better than ours is now. Yeah. Average income was $5,700 a year. However, 
If you had a college degree, you would probably be earning upwards of $9,100 a year. Whoa, that's less than I'm making, and I have a bunch of college degrees. <laughs> and also, this is 1961, so you would have been in the upper class, Hannah, with your uh, They wouldn't let me in there anymore. The average home price was between $9,300 and $11,900. Go buy a house for ten grand. You can't even get a fucking car for that anymore. Right? That's not even a down payment. I know. Today, the average home price is roughly 723000 So, high inflation. This was like 60 years of inflation, I guess. But mm-hmm. that still seems like an unreasonable jump. The average new car cost approximately $2,800. The nicer brands, probably $4,300. Oh, so like a tenfold That's increase. Like half as much as a house back in the day. Right, but like now the cars, like a decent standard car would be about 28000 and a oh, no. maybe nicer one would be forty three. No. No? The average new car price is 42500 uh, Not for like a Honda. New like a Civic. car price. And the Tahoe I just priced out was over $78,000. Mm-hmm. What? Wow. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it's sick. So, That's nasty. Anywho's, we're going to make some repairs to my sweet little explorer and hope that I can drive her till she dies. Yep. Been my plan <sighs> with all of my cars. So we also have the stamp was four cents back in 1961, (sighs) and today it is 63 cents. Mm -hmm. Huh. A loaf of bread cost 21 cents back in 1961. Today, the average for like just standard white bread is about $1.89. My child, of course, prefers nine grain, which cost me (laughs) $4.99. I like a nice sourdough loaf. I like nine grain, mom. Please, mm-hmm. it's healthier for my. I little like brain. those seeds to, to get stuck in my teeth. Right, <laughs> she's almost eight, and literally, she had gone to a friend of mine's house to stay over, and I was like, "Oh, peanut butter and jelly, she's fine." And so my friend made her a sandwich with white bread, and she goes, "Oh, <laughs> I only like the brown bread." <laughs> It sounds so pretentious. Oh my god. I know, right? So pretentious. That's adorable. (laughs) And then a gallon of milk back in 1961 cost $0.49, and today it's averaging around $4.43. For shits and giggles, I added a dozen eggs, because we've all read about this in the news. We have, but I guess I haven't bought eggs enough, because I bought eggs last week and just felt like that was the regular price for eggs. It depends on what type of egg. Now I'm going to get pretentious. I've always bought the free-range organics. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't like the idea of their little feet stuck in the cages. Although free-range organic is also bullshit labels, but... I also don't like... Well, if it's free-range versus cage-free, because cage-free is still asshole. It's just a complete, yeah, total yeah. nothingness. But I, I like the free range because the shells, your thumb doesn't immediately go through them. 
They mm-hmm. they are a little sturdier. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, these chickens actually had calcium in their diet, probably from eating insects, you know? Like, yeah, at anyway. least one would hope. Yeah. But back in 1961, a dozen eggs would set you back a whopping 57 cents. And wow. today, the average price of a non-organic dozen eggs is $4.25. Lately in the news, you've been seeing an increase up to $18.99 a carton. The fuck? What? Okay, literally, no, I've not seen that. I've not seen that. I think I spent maybe $4.75 on my 12-pack of organic, and I was upset because I didn't want the 12-pack. I wanted a six-pack, and I didn't have any six-packs. Oh, man, we blow through eggs. We go through so many more eggs. Yeah, we get the Costco flats. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Okay, I get the Costco flats and go through that within the month. I'm not really a breakfast person. Five dozen eggs. (laughs) Number one. It's just me. I only needed one egg for something I was making, so I have 11 eggs that I'm just looking at. They're not useful for like lunches to bring to work. I can make egg salad, I guess. Yeah, I've honestly never given them an egg before. Scramble them up and give them little morsels. They would probably actually love that. I was just gonna Mm -hmm. give them a raw egg, but you know what? Maybe I'll cook it. Yeah. And to round off my fun facts, a gallon of gas would cost you oh. 31 cents back in 1961. This one hurts. As opposed to the 4.55 a gallon mm-hmm. we are seeing today. All right, now for your three trivia questions, we are going to do this Jeopardy style. <gasps> and I picked ones that I would have gotten. So, good luck to you. <laughs> okay. I love Jeopardy. I have an Alex Trebek pin. Okay. This spotted Disney movie debuted in theaters on January 25th, 1961. Oh, yeah, Hannah has it first. Ding, ding. Well, I was thinking something different, but what is 101 Dalmatians? Mm. Very good. I was thinking Bambi originally. Bambi was earlier. Bambi was earlier. It took me a second to find time. All right. On January 26th of 1961, this professional hockey player, later oh, known no. as the Great One, was born. You guys should know this because we had a hockey episode. Sarah wasn't here for this. Who is Bobby Orr? No. I was like, that's the no. only hockey player I know. And I don't Who think is Wayne old. Gretzky? Ding, ding. Okay. Wow. Okay. I know Bobby Orr from Crossword Puzzles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and also the Trivial Pursuit one hockey question. Oh, yeah. On there. Yep. That I always fucking seem to grab it and I'm like, God damn it, this again? And I already forgot it from last time. <laughs> Bobby Orr for the crossword puzzle writer. And your final Jeopardy-style trivia question. Raymond Burr played this lead detective slash lawyer slash sleuth on this popular TV drama in 1961. I don't like TV. What is drama? Miami Vice? That seems way that's like too... the 80s. No, that's the 80s. What is... I haven't got a fucking clue. Matlock. Getting closer. We're going to go back a little bit <sighs> further. We're going to go, what is or who is... Oh, yeah. Harry Mason. Oh! Oh! Shit, okay. I could have I could have known that one, actually. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Poop. I love me some Perry Mason. I think I grew up watching Murder, She Wrote probably the most. Oh, I love Murder, Because that was also my dad's favorite show. So during this story, we are going to embark upon a trip from Wisconsin to Florida that ends tragically at sea in the Atlantic Ocean near the Bahamas. Oh, boy. This is the story of the Duperalt family. Every time I hear this is the story, I'm like, this is a story all about how. (laughs) (laughs) Their life might have got turned upside down. 
It did. Yeah, it probably did. Kind of literally. Oh. So they capsize? Fuck. Shh. (laughs) It's a little worse than that, but we'll get there. What could be worse than that? Okay, let's get... Arthur Waylon Duperall was born on March 7, 1921 to Ernest and Jane Duperall in Brown County, Wisconsin. Brown town. <laughs> I did try to do some historical like genealogy research in here. It wasn't very plentiful. I found some military records and stuff like that. It does appear that Ernest was a military man and that at least one of his children, Arthur, followed in suit. But it said that there were three children in the Duperalt family. Arthur and his brother Frederick, and then the only other mention of the other child was listed as, quote, and one other child. Oh, not the favorite. That's probably me, like the middle child, so I get it. It's fine. (laughs) And and that (laughs) one. Not noteworthy. God. Arthur served in the U.S. Navy during World War II aboard the USS Pegasus. Most of his time was spent in the South Pacific, and Arthur acquired a love of the sea during his service. He dreamed of someday owning his own boat and sailing around the world. Arthur may have gone by dock... Or at least in a few articles, he was mentioned that way. (laughs) Like doctor or like the dock that you like hook the ship up to. It could be either, but he did become an optometrist specializing in contact lenses. Oh, man. Contact lenses in the 40s had to be shit. Yeah. Yeah, like square glasses. (laughs) Literally glass shards sitting on top of your cornea. Oh, God. (laughs) But he was a specialist, and so he say the Duperall family was probably upper middle to upper class in their status. Arthur married Jean Brosh. In some places it listed it as Bro, B-R-O-A-H, so I'm not sure which one it is, but they got married in 1944 and they lived in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Go Pack, go! Boo! <laughs> I just got to bust out my like accent. <laughs> I like cheese and what they've done to cheese is an abomination. What they've done to cheese? Yeah. Like, they've done some they do? good things to cheese, though. I ordered specialty cheese from Wisconsin for my birthday the year before last, and I was not disappointed. Okay. I feel like, to me, any cheese that is not, like, aged, sharp, cheddar, beamster, gouda kind of stuff is, like... They definitely yeah. have sharp aged cheddar and whiskey. They do. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what I ordered. That was the whiz The one time kind. I had cheese in Wisconsin, we were driving to the Upper Peninsula, and I stopped, and I was like, oh, cheese curds, right? Oh, I love cheese curds. They were awful. They weren't even squeaky. Aw. That is it was weird. Like, I'm eating fucking chopped up pieces of, like, string cheese, cheese put in a bag. Aw. And mm. covered in, like, powder to keep it dry. I was like, the fuck Ew. is this? It was bad. That is so, disappointing. Ew. Okay, so maybe my, my opinion is incorrect, because my one experience with it was tainted with sad cheese but it it made me feel really sad if that was what wisconsin had to offer for cheese and i was like maybe this is just how it is like american craft singles no level of cheese shout out to cheese brothers they're the ones i ordered my cheese from all right it was really really good and i got a couple different types of cheeses but my favorite was their sharp cheddar it was really really good i do love. yeah feel free to sponsor us cheese bros honestly that's like the next best fit for this podcast after um robot litter box cheese yes yes i agree slash booze well yeah there's that 
So Arthur and Jean started their family by welcoming their son Brian on October 27th of 1947, followed by Terry Joe on February 2nd of 1950 and Renee on August 6th of 1954. From all accounts, the Duperalts were a fun-loving family and they had a standard childhood growing up. Their dad was a optometrist and from what I could find, their mom was a stay-at-home mom. Instead of bearing the bitter cold of Wisconsin, Arthur dreamed of taking his young family on a tropical sailing adventure from Florida to the Bahamas. Sounds lovely. It did take a few years to save the money, but in 1961, the Duperalts made their plan. They would charter a boat for at least a week, docking in multiple locations, and spend their time enjoying the warm climate and beaches. And if they liked it well enough, they might even extend their trip permanently. I mean, they probably didn't plan on it. Everyone has eyes. He could work anywhere. This was going to be an amazing trip for the Dubrault family. Arthur and Jean made special arrangements with the children's school for their extended absence, and the family headed south to Fort Lauderdale in early November. Arthur then chartered a 60-foot twin-masted sailing catch named the Bluebell. You know, just your standard family vacation. Right? Owned by a man named Harold Pegg. The cost for this chartered boat was $515. Can you imagine? That'd be such a nice vacation. That sounds Mm -hmm. so great. Right? Note, if you want to learn more about sailboats, check out episode 37, Sketchy Catch. Sketchy Catch! What a catch. I kind of know what we're talking about. This luxurious boat would be their home for at least the next week, and in order to enjoy the family time to the fullest, Arthur hired an acquaintance named Julian Harvey to be the skipper of the Bluebell during their voyage. Arthur agreed to pay Julian $100 per day for his services and to allow Julian's wife, Mary Dean, to accompany him. Mary Dean would also serve as a cook for the Duperalt family. Wow. That's getting better and better. Well, like, the other thing, too, is like, oh, hey, friend, I'm going to pay you to be my servant while uh, while I'm on vacation. I don't think they were friends. I think maybe oh, they just acquaintance. knew each other. Okay. In, All right. Yeah, knew each other in passing somehow. All right. So what do we know about Julian Harvey so far? Well, Julian Harvey was born March 1st of 1917. So he's a Pisces in Manhattan, New York. He enlisted with the U.S. Air Force in August of 1941. He was a decorated Air Force bomber pilot. Hmm. He was medically discharged in 1958. He was a bit of a ladies' man, as he had been married five times before he met and married his sixth wife, Mary Dean. Wow. Wow. I just can't imagine. I think at that point I'd be like, crying. I'm done. I got married (laughs) once and I was like, meh. Right? (laughs) Were these all divorces or was he a widower? Well, I hope they were divorced. No. A widower once. Okay. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. I was going to say, like, that's that's a lot of divorces to go through. It is. Yeah. In that It's era more too. wives to widow, though. Yeah. <laughs> that's a red flag. Right? I mean, so is being divorced five times. Let's be real. So the Duperall family set sail aboard the Bluebell on November 8th 
1961, leaving from the Bahia, which I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Bahia Mar Marina Dock in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I could not find the itinerary for the trip, but the family would stop in a few different locations, which includes the Bimini Islands in the Bahamas, which is about 51 miles southeast of Fort Lauderdale, and Sandy Point, which is on the southern tip of Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas, and that is about 121 miles northeast of the Bimini Islands. So side note, the Bahamas is an archipelago with over 700 islands. 30 of which are inhabited. The Bahamas is located in the West Atlantic Ocean and not the Caribbean Sea, as many people commonly believe. Hmm. On July 10th of 1973, the Bahamas became a free and sovereign country, ending 325 years of peaceful British rule. Bye. Peaceful British rule. Okay. That sounds like an oxymoron. (laughs) Okay, let's just keep going. (laughs) The Bahamas is a member of the Commonwealth of Nations and celebrates its Independence Day on July 10th. Oh, they also have nice summers then. During the next four days of this trip to the Bahamas, the Duperalt family enjoyed the warm weather, the calm seas, the gorgeous beaches, swimming, snorkeling, and of course a little souvenir shopping at the various ports they stopped at. On November 12th of 1961, Arthur and Julian visited the office of British District Commissioner Roderick Pinder. And I did try to figure out what this office does, but it was a pretty big rabbit hole. And like I said, I started writing this today, so I kind of just gave up on this search. It sounds like it's an embassy of sorts, and I'm still not sure why U.S. citizens would be checking in here as opposed to British citizens, but my best guess is that they were finalizing or submitting the Bluebell's itinerary for their travel back to Fort Lauderdale. But Roderick Pinder recalled Arthur stating, quote, This has been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. We'll be back before Christmas. And oh. tragically, they would not. On Monday, November 13th, 1961, a crew member on the Gulf Lion oil tanker noticed a man in a dinghy drifting in the tanker's direction. The man was waving wildly and screaming, quote, help, I've got a dead baby on board. Oh my God. A dead baby? Mm Mm-hmm. The man and the lifeless body of a young girl were pulled aboard the Gulf Lion. The little girl was wearing a life jacket, but was deceased. The man told the sailors that his name was Julian Harvey, and he had been the skipper of the Bluebell. Also, time out. Help on that dead baby on board. The urgency has passed. The baby is dead. Baby's already dead. Also, baby? How old? She was seven. Yeah. Ah, Ah, okay. Hmm. Julian indicated that the Bluebell was traveling back to Fort Lauderdale from the Bahamas, and they were in between the Abaco Islands and the Great Stirrup Cay when the yacht was hit by a strong squall around 8.30 p.m. the previous night. This caused the Bluebell to keel over, snapping the main mast, which pierced the main hull. Julian said he was separated from all of the other people aboard by the debris from the mast and loose rigging. He said he had tried to reach the main cabin, but a small fire had broken out and he couldn't reach any of the other passengers. So he They're abandoned surrounded ship. by water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Julian said he found the body of seven-year-old Renee Duperault floating in the water and he had tried desperately to revive her, but was unsuccessful. Hmm. 
Julian Harvey was then taken to Nassau, Bahamas for questioning. His story seemed plausible to the investigators. They were a little bit curious as to why the dinghy had so many survival supplies on board. But ultimately, because there were no other survivors, they really had nothing else. Yeah. Had nothing to contradict his story. It's just a he said. Julian returned to Miami, Florida on November 15, 1961 for additional questioning by the U.S. Coast Guard, and they would have a lot of extra questions. Julian would be questioned for the next several days, and he would recount the same story to the U.S. officials. On November 16, 1961, Greek freighter named Captain Theo, which I love... (laughs) was traveling through the Northwest Providence Channel near Freeport, Bahamas. They were almost finished with their journey from Belgium to Houston. The Northwest Providence Channel divides the Little Bahama Bank and the Great Bahama Bank. To the east, it opens to the Atlantic Ocean, and to the west, it opens to the Gulf Stream. The second officer on board, Nicholas, and I'm going to butcher these Greek names, and I apologize, Spakadakis... Nice. Sounds great. The second officer, Nicholas Spakadakis, was aboard Captain Theo, and he noticed what he thought appeared to be a white cap about a mile out from the freighter. It seemed odd, though, because the white cap did not disappear as it should. Upon closer inspection, what he saw was alarming, and he immediately notified Captain Stilianos (laughs) Dontis. Sorry again to Greek listeners. What they saw was a two by five cork float carrying a small child. Hmm. Her skin was burnt red and her hair was bleached blonde. Oh. And I want you to note here that this float is not what you might imagine. It's not a boat. It's not even a raft. It's literally an oval cork ring with a net bottom. So you would not be able to lay down or even sit comfortably inside. There's no protection from the water. Oh. And there is a photograph that was taken of this this young girl and the image is incredibly haunting. The captain of the freighter ordered the engines to be stopped and the crew lowered a raft into the water and several crew members traveled out to the child. The little girl was waving slightly and they could tell she had been out in the water for some time. She was wearing a white cotton shirt and pink corduroy pants. Crew members yelled to her not to jump into the water because sharks were circling close to the raft. Oh my god. She was lifted into the raft and transported back to the freighter. On board, members of the crew tried their best to tend to the girl, but she was incoherent and barely able to speak. They gave her some water and some orange juice and tried their best to remove the salt from her body and applied Vaseline to her lips. She weakly told the men that her name was Terry Joe Duperalt before fading into a semi-comatose state. Hmm. The captain contacted the U.S. Coast Guard immediately, informing them of their discovery and the deteriorated state that the child was in. The Coast Guard immediately dispatched a rescue helicopter to the freighter's location. Terry Joe was suffering from exposure, from dehydration, severe sunburn. She was airlifted to a Miami hospital in critical condition. Thankfully, Terry Joe showed signs of improvement after just three hours, but it would take many more days before she was strong enough to describe the horrifying details to the local police and the U.S. Coast Guard investigators. 
On November 17th of 1961, so this is the next day, in the middle of Julian's interview slash interrogation, and remind you, he came on November 15th, so this is like kind of day three of his interviews with the Coast Guard. Julian was told that Terry Jo had been rescued and that she was in critical condition, but improving. Julian exclaimed, quote, oh my God, isn't that wonderful? Oh, yay. I mean, happy that she survived. U.S. Coast Guard Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch told Julian that they would be opening an official investigation into the loss of the Bluebell and her passengers. Julian asked to be excused from the interviews for the rest of the day because he was extremely exhausted and still needed to contact his wife, Mary Dean's family. Can you just do that? I'm going to excuse myself today. I guess so. I guess so. I need my rest now. I'm tired. He was allowed to leave the facility. Julian then drove a short distance toward Biscayne Boulevard and checked into the Sandman Hotel under an assumed name, John Monroe. Interesting. He paid cash to the clerk and went to his room. About two hours later, a maid entered the room to discover Julian in the bathroom. Razor blade cuts to his thigh, ankles, and jugular vein. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Police were notified immediately. A search of the hotel revealed a two-page suicide note addressed to one of Julian's friends from his military days. The letter did not offer any explanations for the suicide or any information as to what happened on the bluebell. It ended with the words, quote, I got too tired and nervous. I couldn't take it any longer, end quote. Okay. The letter did ask that his friend look after his 14-year-old son and requested that his body be buried at sea. After all that? Like, how big of a thing is a sea burial? I don't know. Like, if you don't die at sea, is it weird to take the body back out and just drop it out? I don't know. I mean, you can be cremated and have your ashes spread at sea. Yeah, but I mean, just to have your body dumped in the ocean. That would be actually a pretty cool way to donate your body to science. Be like, I want to be a whale fall. <laughs> but a hum- but a human fall, you know? Cuz like they do they do that. They drag like whales down to the bottom and then like watch the ecology that happens. That's true. It yeah. could be like the body farm but with the oceans. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do that somewhere. We'll have to look into that. Like different interesting body farms in the world. That would be a fun episode actually. Oh, I fucking love it. So, what in the actual fuck happened? Yes. He got caught being, doing something inappropriate and they tried to kill him and then he escaped, but then ended up killing himself out of sadness that the girl survived. My hypothesis. I think he killed himself because the girl survived, not out of sadness. No, no, but like he was scared that he was going to be killed, so he would rather take himself out. Yeah. Ah, yes. Some more sad cheese, basically. Mm. Sad cheese. Mm-hmm. On November 20th of 1961, Terry Jo was strong enough to be able to make her first statement to investigators. Wait, what day? November 20th. So they found like her on five the Five days later? Four days later. Four days later. So here we go. On November 12th of 1961, the Bluebell had begun to travel back from the Bahamas to Florida. Around 9 p.m. after dinner, Terry Joe said they had chicken cacciatore and salad, which could be a food pairing if we wanted it to be. Sounds delicious, too, actually. I don't know that I've had 
chicken cacciatore. I don't know what chicken cacciatore. I you kind of got a little scuttly, so in my mind I thought you said something different, and it was Indian food. But chicken cacciatore, I could look into that. Yeah. So Terry Jo said that after dinner, she went down to the lower cabin to go to sleep. Her parents and her siblings remained on deck with the Harveys. Later that evening, Terry Jo was awoken by the sounds of her older brother Brian screaming and calling for their father. Mm -hmm. She then heard heavy footfalls above her and then total silence. Terry Jo found the courage to go on deck. As she climbed up to the galley area... She found her mother and her brother lying lifeless in a pool of blood. Oh, God. Excuse me? She cautiously came up to the deck looking for her father and for her sister, Renee. She saw Julian, who shouted back at her, Get back down there, and shoved her back down below. She ran back to the lower cabin. She was terrified and she was confused. She sat on her bed, and then she noticed that water was filling the room from the floor up. What the fuck? Julian came back down, and he opened her door. He had a rifle. (gasps) He looked her right in the eye, and then turned around sharply, returning back up to the deck. Jeez. Terry Jo heard hammering sounds above her, and her mattress had begun to float. No, thank you. She waded through the water and upwards towards the deck. She saw Julian standing portside next to the dinghy. He asked her if the dinghy was loose, but she didn't know. Julian then asked her to hold the rope, which was attached to the dinghy, so he could go get something. She did try to hold on, but the rope slipped away from her fingers. When Julian returned, he saw that the dinghy was floating away and he looked at Terry Joe and he dove off the side of the blue ball and swam to the dinghy. Whoa. Terry Joe was left standing on the sinking boat, confused and alone in the darkness. Why was the boat sinking? We'll get there. Okay. Terry Joe remembered that there was a float on deck and she ran to it. She had to scramble across the deck to get it, but once she got there, she untied the rope, she threw the float out into the dark water, and then she swam towards the float, pushing it farther from the sinking boat before climbing on top. She then watched as the bluebell and her family sank below the water. Jesus oh my fucking God. Christ. She was absolutely terrified that Julian would find her, so she didn't move or make a sound until daybreak. Wow. Terry Joe spent three and a half days floating upon the sea. No shelter from the sun, no food, no water. She had to sit upright the entire time, drifting in and out of awareness. She had seen a few planes. They felt pretty close, but nobody saw her. And she did see a few boats and tried to wave to get their attention. Yeah, that's even worse. But they all kept onward without noticing her. And she was all alone, literally in the middle of the ocean. Jesus oh my God. fucking Christ. So just take a second to think about what might have been going through this little girl's mind. She's only 11 years old. So oh. not only has she oh. seen the horrific sight of her mother and brother's dead bodies, she also watched the boat sink into the darkness. She's adrift and there's literally no help in sight. Mm. She did tell, and this is like the only like plus side that I found in this story, was that a like a school of porpoises did like float alongside her for a period of time. And so that brought her a little bit of hope. I wish they kind of would have stuck with her the whole time. But as you can imagine, the sun was burning her skin. Oh, God. The salt water was chafing her skin. She's soaking in it for three days. Yes. God. Fish are nibbling at her. Oh, God. So then she's got like sores 
that are being salted constantly. Yep. <laughs> Terry Joe told the investigators that the mast of the bluebell was intact. It had not broke. And there had not been a fire. So Julian Harvey was a liar. Yeah. What investigators would learn later about Julian Harvey is that even though he was a decorated World War II veteran and Korean War pilot, after his service, he had trouble holding down a job. He had some serious financial problems. And a dive into his past would reveal that he had survived a car accident in 1949 in which his second wife, Joanne, and her mother, Myrtle, perished. The car had plunged off a bridge at a high rate of speed into the water below. Hmm. He swam to safety, but left Joanne and Myrtle to drown. Wow. Well, you gotta save yourself or you're all gonna drown. Yeah. I think it was, it just was pretty suspicious. The accident itself and then everything after. Also, two of his boats, a yawl, which is a two-masted fore and aft rig sailboat called the Torbatross and a powerboat named the Valiant had sunk in the ocean. Oh, not his first rodeo. Uh-uh. Not a great choice for Skipper. In all three of these instances, so the death of his wife and her mother in the car accident, and then the sinking of his two boats, he got pretty large insurance settlements. Okay. Investigators are like, hmm, hmm. Let's check into some more recent records. And they uncovered a double indemnity life insurance policy that Julian had taken out on his wife, Mary Dean, just two months after they got married in July of 1961. Oh, dear. dear. Yeah. So he took the policy out in September. They went on this trip with the Duperalt family in November. The policy was to pay out $20,000 in the event of Mary Dean's death and $40,000 if it was an accident. Okay. Julian had started working for the Bluebell's owner, Harold Pegg, just one month before agreeing to skipper the Bluebell for the Duperalts. Harold had been paying Julian $300 a month, plus allowing him to live aboard the Bluebell, and his job was to take tourists out for different types of cruises, whatever they were interested in. The Duperalts was his first big cruise. Mm. Okay. Investigators believe that Julian had devised a plan to murder his wife, Mary Dean, and then have the Duperalt family as witnesses to Mary Dean accidentally falling overboard. Mm. The family would be able to corroborate his story. However, something went terribly wrong. Perhaps Arthur, Jean, Brian, or even Renee witnessed Julian killing Mary Dean before throwing her overboard. We won't ever really know what transpired on the Bluebell that fateful night. All we know for sure is that Julian Harvey is responsible for it all. Renee Duperalt's autopsy would later confirm that the seven-year-old did in fact die by drowning, even though she was wearing a life vest. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh. Terry Jo was raised by her aunt and uncle on her father's side in Green Bay, Wisconsin. When she was older, she would often drive out to the ocean because she believed that her dad might still be alive somewhere. She Mm. never saw his body, so in her mind, there was still a slight chance. When she turned 35, she finally accepted that even her father was gone. She did study x-ray technology when she was younger, but found it very difficult to cope with other people's trauma. And later she attended the University of Wisconsin-Green, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in cultural geography. 
Cherry Joe never let go of her love of the water, which I admire. All right. Wow. And ended up building a very successful career with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources as a water management specialist where she could work towards the protection of waterways and near shore areas. Okay, that's cool. Terry Joe did not speak publicly about her ordeal for over 20 years. In 2010, she co-authored a book with psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan entitled Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, God, which I did not read. I will add it to my list of shit to read, but we all know about me and books, so it is what it is. Terry Jo turned 73 on February 2nd of this year, celebrating wow. her life with her husband, Ron Fassbender, and their combined, kind of like a Brady Bunch combination, oh. six children. And five grandchildren. Wow. 49 years after the incident, Terry Joe did state during an interview that she did not wish for people to reflect upon her ordeal and opine. Quote, gee, that poor little girl. It's hard not to. It is. But rather think to themselves, she has gone on with her life. And Terry Joe also stated that she always believed that she was saved for a reason. And if one person can heal from a life of tragedy, her journey will have been worth it. End quote. It's very mm-hmm. magnanimous. But yeah, so that is the story of the Sea Orphan and the Duperalt family. There's not a good level of closure to this because, yeah, like, you know, yeah. dude killed himself. But for some Pisces astrology, less evolved Pisces. Very watery. Yes, very yeah. watery. Less evolved Pisces traits can include the tendency to be sensitive and moody, the tendency to overthink. Oh, yeah. They can suffer from low self-esteem. They can be indecisive. <laughs> They can have escapist tendencies. Yep. Well, yeah, there's that. They can avoid taking responsibility. Yeah. I feel like I I take more responsibility. Sometimes I, like, apologize for stuff that's not my fault. (laughs) But you're more evolved. That's the other parts of your chart playing in a role here, too. Thanks. So a lot of these do apply in the case of Julian Harvey. So for me, Julian Harvey, you can kiss my mast because you're a piece of ship. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. oh, God. So good. I had to do some boat puns, so I can't help myself. I have two things to add. Okay. So I know this picture. Okay. And I read an article about it like a year or two ago, and I can't Ooh. find that fucking article. There's a lot of written press about this case. It was a really good, like, long-form article, which did remind me there's a magazine called Outside, which is not really my cup of tea because it's all about hiking and kayaking. Being and, outside. And being outside. But they do have um on their website, they have the Horror Vault, and Ooh. so it's some of the collection of the scariest strangest and most riveting tales we've ever published there's some good shit in here i I swear to god i thought it was here and i don't see it but like oh god there are some good stories in here so if you like long form articles there's that yeah and then the other thing is just spending a long time alone on the sea trying to survive i have a book for that oh uh which also has some cannibalism in it It, sweet it is me and (laughs) it is called in the heart of the sea the tragedy of the whale ship essex by nathaniel philbrick and it's basically this fucking whale ship gets rammed by a fucking whale good 
a little bit good, but then they like split up into like three lifeboats out in like the like South Pacific and are just mm-hmm. like floating around for like fucking months. It's fucking oh, whalers. Incredible though. It is an incredible book. Like I read it more than once because I just was like, what the fuck is this? How does wow. anyone survive this? I think I would read it just to hear the horrors of what a bunch of fucking whalers had to go through because they deserve every minute of it. I will say. And then some. Uh, back then, though, they didn't, I probably it had the same um, perspective that we have looking back on it. But uh, yeah, it's fascinating because he also talks about, well, I think this actually, this tragedy, the whale ship Essex was maybe the germ of the idea for Moby Dick. Okay. Oh. Uh, so What's-His-Face read about, heard about this in like a newspaper and wrote a whole book about it, but this was the real story. And then he also talks a bit about, oh, it happens when you start starving to death, like what happens to your body and stuff like that. And what happens That's to cool. you? So like being out on the on the water in the sun with no coverage is just like yeah. seared in my nightmares. Fascinating book, though. I highly recommend it. So that's my contribution. Okay. And then I do have some ass news, Hannah. Ass news. Ass news. Time to turn around and look at your ass news. (laughs) Nice. This episode is going to air, hopefully if I can get my shit together and feel better over the weekend, on Monday, February 27th. And I do have a wee bit of astrology for Thursday, March 2nd. Just a wee. Two things. So Mercury in Aquarius will be conjunct with Saturn in Aquarius. So this is going to be a really great day to do some volunteering. Do something for somebody beside yourself. And also, Mercury will enter Pisces and our thoughts, our ideas are going to become super dreamy as we enter <laughs> the gentle more water dreaminess mm-hmm. into Pisces season. We will be more creative and artistic with our words and our thoughts, but do be careful because we also may become a little delusional as we look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Failed that. But yeah, that's what I have for you guys this week. Like I said, listeners, we would love to hear from you, especially from our Ashburn, Virginia Malibu, California, and any of our listeners in Norway, reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com and then check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. Bye. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.